Welcome to The Term, a podcast for the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? I'm thawing out over here uh, in, in D.C. The The sun is more or less out. We're in the 60s today. Uh, so, Whoa, yeah, nice. I don't know. I don't want to jinx it, but... Uh, you know, much like the the Supreme Court's midwinter recess, potentially spring uh, season is is upon us soon, which I'm very excited about. Well, I, I've I've actually looked into like the cherry blossom schedule, and like that's actually coming up like in the near future, like late March. So, oh yeah, we're, we're there. Uh, peak, we're there. Peak bloom seems to be happening earlier and earlier every year. Uh, so you should definitely make a trip down for that. Uh, but there's some there's some news to catch up on. I would say, despite um, you know the lack of oral arguments or you know merits decisions, we got that order in the big Voting Rights Act case that we discussed last week. It came out on Monday as opposed to Friday. We were off by a couple of days, but that's okay, right? Yeah, I mean, who's counting, right? <laughs> who's counting? But before we get to that, um, let's let's talk about Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, she actually gave a pretty interesting speech last night. That's right. Um, she she was talking, I believe, at uh, the NYU Law School for the inaugural Robert A. Katzman lecture. Um, and virtually, Jimmy, of course. Virtually, yes. But Jimmy, you were covering this, so kind of what's what are some of the big takeaways from that that speech? Yeah, what's the, what's the what there? Uh, so I was kind of expecting, you know, not much in the way of substance when you have a lot of these uh, Supreme Court appearances. Um, they they talk about things that don't really touch on anything. Um, contemporary issues or, or anything like that. But I was I was surprised to hear Justice Sonia Sotomayor kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to say take her gloves off or anything like that, but she did, did seem to, you know, call attention to what she considered to be some worrying trends, you know, not just at the Supreme Court, but but in the, you know, in the federal judiciary entirely, writ large. Um, and specifically, I, I, I was interested to hear her say that she thinks judicial philosophies are becoming tightly interwoven was the phrase that she used with politics with with political parties and the idea is that you know uh political parties have glommed on to the language of judicial methods and and interpretation as a way to kind of i don't know what she considers to be force outcomes in specific cases so here's her quote she says i think for the first time in our history the mantle of judicial philosophy has become tightly interwoven with political parties for almost all of our history, political parties debated what was the best way to govern. Now, political platforms have adopted the language of judicial doctrines as a way to control outcomes in cases. And she says, but dangerously, the back and forth that comes in academic debate that goes into looking at the strengths and weaknesses and costs of different doctrinal approaches is a nuance the public is not taught by political players. And she goes on to say that, you know, these complex academic ideas about interpreting the Constitution and, you know, interpreting the law is being boiled down to what she calls slogans. And that she sees as a a very uh, worrying trend in in a speech that she otherwise directed to the subject of judicial independence. And so, you know, she doesn't be, she's not specific about who she's calling out or or what have you, but, you know, uh, I think close observers of, of the Supreme Court, um, and, you know, the judicial system at large can kind of intuit that maybe she's referring to the conservative legal movement and how, you know, certain uh, 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 the, the language of originalism and potentially textualism has been kind of adopted wholesale by the Republican Party as they kind of advance their their nominees through the system. Now, that's my 
that's the 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 layperson's interpretation of her uh, speech. She obviously didn't say as much, but I don't know, Natalie. What do you think? Yeah, I, I just feel like this is just the latest um, chapter, latest piece of conversation and a broader conversation that seems to be happening with the justices um, in their public speeches about, you know, this whole issue of the independence of the court and the kind of sometimes blurry-ish lines between the judges, the the court and um, politics. You know, Justice Breyer's obviously made a couple of uh, public comments and has written a book this year um, about this issue and, and kind of addressing it and, and the, the concerns. Um, and now we have Justice Sotomayor's uh, comments uh, last night. Um, Jimmy, kind of what are some of your takeaways here for, from that? Well, I don't think Justice Sotomayor's remarks are happening in a vacuum at all. I mean, she seems, at least from my vantage point covering the court, uh, to be concerned with you know, what some have labeled the conservative takeover on the court where we now have a kind of a really energized uh, supermajority of Republican appointees that just this term seemed determined to, to move the law in a more rightward direction on issues like abortion rights, gun rights, uh, environmental standards, and, and next term, affirmative action. Um, and I, I'm, just, I'm thinking about her quote at, you know, December's abortion hearing on whether to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade, where she says, will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? So, um, I guess we'll see which justice takes up the next public comment on this issue um, and see if, see if they answer that question, right? Um, Jimmy, I, I think, though, we should probably turn to kind of the big news of the week, which was that order we mentioned in the voting rights case. Um, you've been watching this. Kind of give us the rundown. On Monday, uh, the court voted five to four to grant Alabama's request to reinstate a congressional map for the 2022 elections that a lower court said diluted black voter representation in violation of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, that's that's the uh, long and short of it. Uh, the court has agreed to take up uh, Alabama's two appeals here, um, which basically challenged the merits of the the lower court's underlying decision and saying that you know what we have done here in our you know the the new congressional map that we wrote as a result of the the latest twenty twenty census results was not a violation of the Voting Rights Act. It doesn't unconstitutionally or it doesn't you know violate the statute by um, diluting black voter representation. So that's basically what the court did in a nutshell. And Chief Justice Roberts, um, surprisingly to some, dissented along with the three liberal justices. So kind of what was the court's rationale here? Can can kind of give us in a nutshell what their thinking was? Well, that's just the thing. We don't actually know what the court's rationale was because like other recent shadow docket orders, you know, this one didn't come with a written explanation by the court. Instead, you know, for any insight into what the majority may have been thinking, we have to kind of look to Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who wrote a concurrence kind of explaining at least his perspective on the case. And I guess you could also say Justice Alito's perspective because he joined that concurrence. And in it, he referred to what's been called the Purcell Principle. It, it comes from a, a Supreme Court decision that basically holds that a federal courts shouldn't interfere with state election rules close to an election. Now, I should say that 
The lower court orders came out in January, just a few months after the congressional maps were <laughs> drawn. Um, so it does raise the question of when can you challenge a, a voter map if not you know, in the immediate days after it. But apparently the 2022 midterm elections, um, which I think you know, absentee ballots start at like the end of March, I believe, but the, the, the primaries in, in May, that's close enough in the eyes of at least Kavanaugh and um, Alito to effectively decide the case in favor of Alabama and preserve the status quo. I feel like we're we're just set, being set up for another court case down the line here about like when does it make sense to 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 file like these these kind of suits. Um, okay, so you kind of gave us Justice Kavanaugh's um, concurrence. Uh, did, was there anything from the dissent? There was. Um, so there was actually two dissents, and this is something we've seen before, where you know the liberal justices will kind of join together on one opinion. And then Chief Justice Roberts will, will write his own, explaining you know his own his own take on things. Um, but turning to that uh, principal dissent, um, as it's called, uh, Justice Elena Kagan, uh, joined by Justice Sotomayor and Justice Stephen Breyer, you know, says that basically what the court has done here is just another example of circumventing the normal appellate process and you know issuing these speedy, unexplained orders on its shadow docket and. You know, she goes, she points out that the, the three-judge district court panel that originally imposed these injunctions in January had received, you know, over a thousand pages of briefing in the case, heard days of expert testimony before ultimately concluding, in its view, that, um, you know, Alabama had to add a second black majority congressional district beyond just the one that they had. Um, uh, black Alabamians, uh, you know, represent around 27% of the state's eligible voting population, despite they're under the current map they're only being you know accounting for one majority district out of a possible seven um and just as kagan says that the the court's uh order unexplained order is going to allow the the dilution of the black vote um during the 2022 elections in the state okay so so some pretty strong words from justice kagan there and you know I feel like this is just a continuation of what we've been hearing for for many months now about the shadow docket and the growing kind of internal debate, um, even among the justices about, you know, the use of, of these kind of late night orders or, you know, orders without much um, kind of writing to, 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 to show their reasoning behind them. Um, or did any, anyone right? address that? Yeah, so, so Justice Kavanaugh, responds to that criticism in his concurrence. And he says, the principal dissent's catchy but worn out rhetoric about the shadow docket is similarly off target. And he he basically um, makes the argument that what the court has done here um, is to temporarily stay a lower court order. They're not actually ruling on the merits. Um, they are going to revisit the merits of the case, at which point you know the parties can make both of their arguments in full briefing and oral argument. Um, before a decision is handed down. So that's his response to at least the the shadow docket criticism of com the, the shadow docket component of Kagan's dissent. Now, earlier you mentioned Justice Roberts, though. What, yeah, what, just, was, what was his comment? How did he chime in? So Roberts writes 
a, a very interesting dissent in which he says that under his view, the lower court has properly applied the Supreme Court's current precedent regarding how to adjudicate claims made for voter dilution under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And he says that in because the, the lower courts just simply applied binding Supreme Court precedent, as it's currently stated, that he would allow um, the he would allow that those injunctions, which required Alabama to make a new map to add the second majority black uh, district in the state, he would allow that injunction to be uh, in place for the 2022 elections. But, and this is where it gets kind of interesting, he acknowledges um, the argument made by Alabama that the Supreme Court's precedents have created a, like a large amount of uncertainty on how to assess claims made for voter dilution under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that he would welcome the opportunity to hear those arguments in full at a hearing on the merits. And so he's not dissenting to the court's ultimate, the part of the court's decision that says, we're going to review this case on the merits at a later date. And I think it's fair to say that this is probably going to come up in the October 2022 term. You know, not, it's not going to be tagged on to the April session or anything like that. That's at least my theory. Um, so this does suggest that when the court actually does take up the merits of Alabama's appeals here, that, you know, there's potentially another vote in play for tweaking or at least changing current the Supreme Court's current approach to Section 2 claims made under the Voting Rights Act. Okay, so we'll see if our prediction your prediction, which I, I tend to agree with on this being an October 2022 term case, uh, proves to be correct. Um, but so so that, that would mean, though, essentially that the Alabama election will go forward with this old map, right? Right. A map in which there's uh, one majority black district out of a possible seven. Now, you know, we're assuming, of course, that the court doesn't expedite the merits of this case to maybe an April hearing and, you know, decides to uh, side with the voters, uh, you know, Section 2 Voting Rights Act claim before <laughs> the, you know, the, the midterms take place in, or, or at least the, the primary or the general. I, but I just don't see a scenario in which that takes place, especially because we can pretty much say that the conservatives seem to be sympathetic at least if we even if we don't have their rationale we can i think say that they seem to be leaning in favor of alabama's defense of its original map here so this is probably looking like a an october term case where a decision might even take a few more months beyond that well jimmy i think that just about wraps us up then for this week jam-packed again considering the the justices are on their 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 little break for the for midwinter recess um as always thanks so much jimmy yeah jam-packed and of course we're gonna find out what jam-packed looks like when like biden <laughs> announces his nominee next week or something <laughs> i have no intel there so we'll we'll wait and see but absolutely natalie thanks so much and, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in we'd like to thank our producers steven trader and kelly marcano and our executive producer amber mckinney Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.